When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshi's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. And I'm Adam Bob. And in case it's your first time with First Act, Adam and I are both experienced editors who interview small business owners, CEOs and thought leaders every day. And we learn so much from these different life experiences. It's the reason that we love doing this podcast. Well, I just love hanging out with you here in this very small studio, Seth Busby. (laughs) We've done about 20 plus episodes together so far, first act, and we've got so much more to come this season. If you're enjoying it as much as we are, pop a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Now, first act is all about the origin stories of fascinating founders, Who's in the hot seat today, Sess? Ooh, Eustace Hammer is the man behind a business that was, for quite a few years now, has had the reputation as being the Airbnb for pets. Eustace is the founder of Australia's largest online pet care platform, Mad Paws, which connects dog and cat owners across Australia with trusted, vetted pet sitters. Now, since launching in 2014, Mad Paws has grown to have more than 15,000 pet sitters and a few sub-businesses too, like its Mad Paws Dinner Bowl, which is a pet food subscription service. This seasoned entrepreneur has a lot more than raw pet food in his fascinating backstory. He's passionate about marketing and startups, having founded Australia's largest group buying company, Spreets, in 2011, and investing in more than 10 startups in Australia and overseas. Justus Hammer, we're excited to hear your first act. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Justice, we are excited to chat with you today and thank you very much for <laughs> finding out. Uh, there's a bit of a behind-the-scenes backstory here of a couple of meeting rooms that you had to go through at Mad Paws. <laughs> but thank That's you for it. finding one where you could chat. I mean, it's the reality of office when we are in the office nowadays. We um, Look, we always start with our first act icebreaker. Your icebreaker for today is what breed of dog or cat best describes your personality? Wow, that's a that's a tough one. Um, uh, I would probably say um, maybe a cavoodle. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is also because we've got, we've got a cavoodle in the in the family, but um, they like to investigate. Um, they they um, learn pretty quickly. I hope I learn pretty quickly, and um, and they're also quite cheeky. Maybe that's a good characterization. A cheeky cavoodle. That's right. Well, I think <laughs> you better live up to that in this conversation. <laughs> we will be the judge of this. <laughs> puts, a lot of, uh, puts a lot of pressure on me now, I guess. Now he's wishing to said Great day. I was thinking that maybe, maybe, the sausage dog, maybe the sausage dog would have done a good choice as well, you know, because I'm, I'm German, so, and uh, they are my favourite breed pretty much. But, oh. uh, yeah. Well, we won't do any. We'll stick with a couple. We won't do any stereotyping there. Now, <laughs> on that note, um, let's start with young Justus. Uh, you grew up in Germany, so tell us tell us about your upbringing. What was that like? 
Um, yeah, so I grew up in Munich, um, and I was uh, I was I was not your typical kind of I guess entrepreneur that was selling orange juice um, in the front back uh, in, the, in your front yard. I was very sports kind of oriented, so I didn't like school much. I loved sports. Um, I started playing soccer as you have to uh, when you when you grow up in Germany, and, and particularly in Munich with uh, FC Bayern Munich, obviously there. Um, but then kind of grew pretty quickly to what I'm now six foot six and figured out that basketball was probably a better sport for me. Um, so started playing basketball when I was 15 and, um, and for quite a while I thought that's going to be my career. Um, uh, played a little bit of professional basketball when I was going at 19, 20 and then, um, figured out that that's not going to be, you know, it for the rest of my life. Um, uh, but kind of stuck with basketball for a long period of time, kind of uh, got into coaching quite a bit uh, and still played like second, third league in Germany um, for a while, financed my, my study with that. And it's kind of one of my, one of my big passions um, is sports. And so, so that was really kind of where, where it all started. Um, I then I did university, but uh, that was really just me following one of my best friends because I had no idea what I'm going to study. And um and he ended up studying microeconomics, uh, sorry, macroeconomics. And uh, I had no idea what that is, but I still signed up for it. And it turned out to be quite good for me because uh, one of the things I, I was always, I was always good in math. That's a very math-driven uh, study in, in Germany. Yeah, I actually enjoyed that more than, than school. From, from there, I kind of then uh, figured out at some stage I have to get a job. And um, that's when my journey in startups, I guess, started. Uh, because, you know, very, very quickly I kind of figured out that um, going into a corporate is probably not what's, uh, what's going to drive me or what I'd enjoy. Um, so, so I started working for a kind of startup in Germany that was in, in the online space. And that's where I put kind of my feelers into kind of online marketing for the first time. Yeah, so was that the moment that you really connected with marketing and you could see that there might be a possible career path there for you? Yeah, so it, that took a little while, I think, um, because like I said, I, I came kind of from the macroeconomic side. I was um, I, the first company I worked with. I was actually um, working more on the kind of legal side. With it was it was the whole time where the deregulation happened in Germany. So I was kind of in that space, but why I actually ended up in marketing was I was good in Excel. And that was the time that, you know, Google was kind of becoming big and, um, and the marketing people in, in, the, in the office kind of realized that I'm good in Excel and they had to do a lot of stuff in Excel to kind of do optimizations and so forth. Weren't as nice tools out there as they are today. And, um, and that's kind of how I fell into marketing. If you would have asked me when I was 20, 21, 22, if, I, if I'd want to do marketing, I definitely would have said no, because marketing for me was always associated with, you know, your kind of big brand, creative type of marketing, which certainly is not my, my strong suit. Um, but then once I kind of realized that there's actually a huge part of marketing now growing in, in this whole kind of performance side, data-driven kind of marketing, that's when it kind of piqued my interest. So what brought you from Munich to Sydney? I think it was about 27, 28, and my, my girlfriend at the time then uh, finished university and it was kind of the, the time where we thought, okay, there's, there's a chance now where we've, we, we can still get away before we kind of settle in, in Germany. And one of my best friends was here in Sydney, at the University of Sydney, actually, 
doing his master's here. And he said, hey, I think, I think you're going to love it down here. And that was, that was kind of all we needed. We, did, we wanted to go somewhere where it's warm. Uh, we didn't want to go to the States. And um, so kind of Australia was right there for the taking. Came here and, and I think after six or eight weeks, I've never looked back and just tried to find a way to stay. What differences would you say you notice between how Germans like to work versus how Australians like to work? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, uh, I've thought about this quite a bit. There, there's quite a few differences, I think. And it, it, I mean, it depends always also on your life stage. I think, you know, I'm probably seeing things much quite differently now than when I was back in Germany. And I only worked in Germany really for like three, four years, right? But so, so I think that there's some of the Typical things you say about Germans that are probably true. I think they're quite hardworking. Not saying that Australians are not hardworking, but um, I think there's definitely a, a kind of level of detail that you find in Germany that's harder to get in, in Australia. And I think that was kind of one of the, the advantages I had maybe here. So I think Germans in general are quite detailed oriented and quite structured, obviously. Now, I'm probably not your typ- typical German, so I'm probably not the most structured uh, German you'd find out there. But um, I definitely feel like that's um, that's kind of one of the differences when I came from Germany to here, on kind of learning how that works. And then obviously, uh, it's a it's a lot more casual, I'd say in in Australia. And, and depends on what what areas you work in. But um, you know, just starting from in Germany, everything starts with second with your last name, right? Like if you if you work in a company, most of the time if you don't know somebody on day to day basis, you, you you talk to them. You know, talking to them in the in the in the last name, that's you know, how you address them. When in in Australia, it's you know unheard of. And I guess your love of sports would also make you fit in quite well here in Australia. Was that part of your attraction of the lifestyle too? Like being able to get out in the grey outdoors and to be able to have it lead a kind of very physical lifestyle too. Yeah, a hundred percent. So, I mean, first of all, the weather is obviously you know significantly better than in Germany. Even though every every time I go back to Germany you now, it seems to be the two weeks where it's beautiful weather over there, and you tend to forget kind of how miserable it is sometimes <laughs> in winter. You choose your but, times um, wisely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's beautiful in Germany, you know, and it, especially when the weather is is great, it's a it's a great place to be. Um, but yeah, I think I think that you know I'm, I'm I love being outdoors. I'm I've kind of picked up golf now now that I'm old and can't play basketball as good as as I want to anymore. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely was a big part for me on, on, you know, what attracted me to kind of staying here. Now you always seem to be ahead of the curve with your innovative technology ideas. Can we take a look back at one of the first ones, which was the idea for Spreets? How did you land on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, Spreets was really, you know, one of, one of those ones where we, we just saw an opportunity we saw it working somewhere else, uh, and it was as very much ex- executional play on on making sure that you can make it work here in Australia. Um, so back in the back in the days when um, when I was thinking about kind of starting spreads or, or starting a company in that space, um, I was working at GetPrice, which was a shopping comparison site, and I talked to you know through like one of my mentors, who was the who was the CEO was the CEO of GetPrice back then. He kind of introduced me to quite a few entrepreneurs here in 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 Sydney, which really helped me to kind of start thinking about opportunities and and what I'd want to do because I was at that crossroads of either doing something myself or actually staying in marketing and 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 going to a bigger company. I actually signed a contract with Google back then, 
to start working at Google. And only only kind of in the last minute, literally the, the day before I was supposed to start at Google um, on Sunday, I gave them a call and said, I'm not, I'm not coming in. I'm starting a company, which, you know, they thought I'm crazy. But um, and I thought I'm crazy because it was a tough, tough decision, you know, back then. But it was kind of one of those ones where I felt, um, you know, it was it was the right thing for me to do because there was a we saw the opportunity and how quickly Groupon bought, um, grew in the in the US. Um, and the downside for me was fairly small, right? I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a family and, and um, uh, big bills to pay. So the downside for me was like, okay, this, if this doesn't work, I'm still probably going to learn more than anywhere else. Um, and I can still go back to Google if I need to. Um, so that made kind of my decision back then a little bit easier. But yeah, it was really about, that one was really about spotting an opportunity overseas, kind of looking at the market here and trying to figure out whether this would work here. And then about executing better than anybody else. Um, and I think, you know, it's always, I, th- I mean, I think in startup land, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, um, what's the right word, kind of after, after the fact, making up stories on kind of how brilliant somebody was and kind of picking up something, um, you know, <laughs> mythologizing. A is, <laughs> yeah. yeah. A, a big chunk of that just being there at the right time at the right um, um, space. Right. And so, so I think we were, we were lucky at that, that we were, we picked the right space at the right time. And then I think what we were good at was in executing that better than, than anybody else and becoming the number one in the kind of group buying space very, very quickly. Yeah, you were able to spot the opportunity at the right time, which which is sometimes 75% of success, I think, just being able to spot, yeah. spot what's coming. And the and, but, but it's, you know, a lot of time that's also that's also driven by luck, right? I mean, you can you can pat yourself on the back and say you've, you've looked at everything and kind of made the right call, but you know, it, some, sometimes it's also just, just I've, I've been wrong as well, right, on opportunities. And sometimes it just doesn't play out the way you think it will. Nonetheless, luck aside, the success of Spreets has been really well documented. You grew it to 1.5 million members and then more than 100 staff in, in less than a year. And then you sold Spreets on to Yahoo 7 for 40 million after just 10 months. Now, what steps did you take to beef up the brand in that time to be able to get it valued at such a high price so quickly? Um, yeah, so I think a couple of things came together that kind of worked well. Um, and um, and those, like, the, the, the key things for us, again, was kind of all about execution, right? So um, we knew that that is a model that you have to drive very quickly and very hard from a marketing perspective. Um, so, you know, we were not shy on spending money and we also had the right investors to kind of push us, push us that way. Right. So if we would have not had the right investors and we would have had maybe more conservative investors, they would have been maybe more concerned about you know, kind of our run, um, our runway and how long we can kind of survive at that spend. They were more pushing us to spend harder and, and grow the, the company faster. Because it was a very competitive space, right? We had, I think at some stage, we counted 80, 81 competitors in that space, right? Because everyone who had a database at some stage thought, okay, I can, why don't I do a group buying site, right? And, um, you know, fortunately, it wasn't as easy as that. Um, but I think that's, 
that was um, so being very aggressive in um, that execution, um, kind of really, really putting all our chips on the table um, to grow it quickly, and um, and at the other on the other end also being um, probably a bit ahead of the curve in terms of how we um, how we ran our performance marketing um, side of things. So you know even even back then we were already um, we were able to tell you kind of on a single customer base kind of when when did they join um, how much did we spend on them and what time uh, how long did it take us to make them profitable now that's pretty standard kind of procedure for now but back then that was quite of quite ahead of the our times and i think that allowed us to um, also be more aggressive in how we spend um, our marketing than, than some of our competitors. So we're talking about a period that was only 10 years ago and how much that has changed in performance marketing and, and what you're saying now about the, the, the depth of data that we're dealing yeah. with, uh, we brands are dealing with on a daily basis and it's just baked into a lot yeah. of business models now. So you, you build up this business, you build up Spreets, sell it to uh, then Yahoo 7 for $40 million. I mean, it sounds like a dream come true. Most people would be like, I'll take the 40 million and go live on an island. But you've been extremely active in business since then. Uh, why is that? Well, I mean, the first reason is that I didn't quite get the whole 40. Right? But, <laughs> um, That's but, the uh, juicy yeah, stuff we want to know. I have co-founder and so forth, right? So this, this breaks it down a bit more. <laughs> um, you know, by, by, by today's standard, I probably couldn't, couldn't buy a house from that in, in Sydney anymore. But... Um, um, but yeah, the, I think the other the other thing you learn quite quickly, and um, and that's something I've kind of had to learn all, over the years as well. It's not about it's not about making a amount of money at some stage, right? Because I think if you think about um, you know the pleasure you get from from working or the, the 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 enjoyment you get from something is not about making a amount of money. I mean, this is kind of an endpoint, and that's great. But if you don't, if you don't kind of find ways and kind of enjoying the the, the, the journey, uh, it's a pretty pretty sad um, uh, existence, right? So, so I think that's something I learned certainly after that because I was like, oh, yep, there's a chunk of money, great. Um, but I was already, and luckily, I was already involved in a couple of businesses like Airtasker, for example, um, quite early as an investor and mentor, um, and a couple of other businesses that we started or tried then. Um, to still be involved in businesses and kind of enjoy kind of growing them, and so that's what I've that's what I've kind of focused on since then. Can I ask, just going back to Spreets for a second though, was sure. there always an exit plan? Like, did you build it knowing you were going to sell it? Yes. So, so I'd say Spreets probably one of the the few businesses we've done where it was very clearly defined and kind of what we'd want to do. Um, um, because because we've seen the kind of massive growth in the US, and we knew there were a couple of you know parties in Australia that might be interested in this space um, to tag that onto their existing business. <clears throat> we always thought there's you know that's the kind of benefit of being the number one and growing at the fastest. You probably get a um, a premium on the exit um, if you're number one because you know selling number one is always much easier than selling two, three, or four. And you get a better price for it, right? So, and I think again that timing kind of worked out perfectly for us. Absolutely, from from kind of the beginning that we started Spreets, it was it was built with an intent to sell it. So, we've talked a bit about that being, you know, a, a, that's a major success. But you also alluded to the fact you've got uh, you've had ideas that were not the right 
right time or right place, um, ones that you so-called got wrong, but, you know, it's, we learn from these things. Uh, what yeah. What are some ideas? Like, do you have any examples of that that you can share? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the, 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 the latest one was probably um, sellable. So that was, I was always quite interested in the, in the kind of real estate space and kind of learn a little bit more on kind of how we could potentially build a model that is more efficient um, and, and really kind of solve some of the issues in the market. And so we started Sellable um, in oh, 2015, I think, or 16. Um, and this was very much focused about um, giving your money for your house, essentially in seven days. Right. So um, how the model worked was you'd come to us and say, I want to sell my house. We would look at it. We'd, we'd run an um, a automated valuation on it. Um, we'd physically look at the house. And then within seven days, we'd get we'd say, okay, cool, we, we'll give you a million bucks for it. Um, so very quick kind of turnaround rather than your kind of traditional real estate um, uh, transaction. And, um, and, you know, all kinds of details come into that. But I think where we, we got this wrong was th this model actually now works in some other countries particularly well. For example, uh, in Spain, Italy, um, some of the markets where the real estate markets are not as sophisticated as here in Australia. And so I think what we underestimated then was that the real estate market for Australia is already high sophistication. Um, everyone in Australia is pretty much a real estate investor, right? I mean, you, you can't go to a dinner party or something and not talk about real estate. Um, and everyone knows what the house is worth, right? Because there's like 10 tools online you can have a look at and everyone kind of tracks it against their neighbor. And, you know, I've got a, um, my pool is two meters longer and that's why it's worth $100,000 more. That's kind of very, that very kind of, common conversations in Australia, where in, you know, you, you go to Italy, for example, somebody, and ask somebody what their house is worth there, they wouldn't know unless they really look at selling it, right? Because they live in the house and that's their home. Um, so, so I think we kind of really underestimated that sophistication and, and what that means for a model like this. So, um, so even though we've, I think we've transacted 40, 44, 45 properties, um, at that time, um, and in timing, you know, also bad timing, COVID hit exactly when we were trying to do a bigger cap raise. Um, and that obviously put the whole real estate real estate world uh, into overdrive for, for, for a couple of months where people thought our prices are going to drop and, and we couldn't raise the money. So, you know, that was, that was definitely a learning on, on uh, where we got the timing perfectly right for spreads. We probably got the timing and the market slightly wrong for, for that model. So if you parked it, will it um, resuscitate, do you think? Is there ever a time that the Australian property market will be ready? So, well, I think because we got the market wrong slightly as well, I think we we only do that with a changed model, right, to, to actually um, address uh, the market here a little bit better than what we tried to do with the original model. So... We never, we're never going to try that model again here in Australia, at least at least not us. There's a couple of other companies that do great work on this, like Own Home, for example, that are more focused on the <clears throat> affordability side of the market, which is a big problem here, right? Like for, for a lot of kind of younger uh, um, people, it's really hard to get into the real estate market and how can you solve that issue? I think that's a, that's a much bigger problem um, to kind of look at and solve potentially. We'll be back with more from Justus Hammer and uh, we'll hear more about Mad Pause 
after this short break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, Eustace, like, let's jump forward to Mad Paws. Have you always been passionate about animals yeah I, I grew up with animals and um <clears throat> we we had a dog in the family um when we grew up and um and i've always been in love with with dogs um now um you know i haven't had dogs uh, in australia um up until now luckily my, my wife um uh, family's got a dog and we've got uh, that dog quite a bit uh, we had two two kids in the last uh, three years but um you know, the, the the new dog is definitely on the on the horizon, and um, I think once once our little one, who's just two months old now, is uh, is getting a little bit easier and lets us sleep from time to time, we'll we'll go back to no sleep uh, sleepless night or more sleepless nights with a with a puppy very and soon. Another cheeky cavoodle. Yeah, I mean, if, if you ask my wife, probably not. Um, <laughs> you know, she wants she wants maybe something a little bit bigger. Um, like a like a Labrador or um, some or, or a Grudel actually, um, but something in that space. I mean, we're in Bondi as well, so we're probably not going to get around not having something Grudel. You know? <laughs> <laughs> seems to be seems to be a, a must. <laughs> well played. Yes, you you won't be able to be a card carrying member of the Bondi community without yeah. some kind of Oodle. <laughs> That's right. Now, you founded um, Mad Paws with Alexi Sulopoulos. How did the two of you meet? And, and when did you realise that you would make good business partners? Yeah, so actually, um, so there's two other founders that were in the business as well. Uh, one of them is our chairman now, Jan Pakas, and, um, and the other one uh, is now back in, um, back in uh, Germany. But... We kind of all were looking at this um, as an opportunity because, A, you know, um, we're kind of very close to pets. Uh, Jan is an absolute um, uh, pet lover. We, we have a lot of conversations about who takes the number one position in his, in his, in his family, whether it's his, whether, whether it's his dog or his daughter. It's very <laughs> equal, equal footing. Um, but we kind of looked at those opportunities. And then Jan and, and, um, uh, and luckily we, we were also talking to, to Alexis, who we got to know through Jan's association in his university. Um, so Alexis was running um, kind of the expat pr- um, uh, um, program from memory, and um, and that's how we met. And so at that time, you know, it was kind of the perfect match because Alexis was this kind of young, um, hungry uh, entrepreneur who's kind of looking to really get his teeth into something, and we were looking for somebody to help us to really drive the business. And so, so I think that was that was kind of the f- perfect match, uh, and it turned out to be the um, the perfect match because Alexis done an awesome job for the first couple of years, kind of operationally driving the business, where we kind of helped to you know fund the business and um, help them from a strategy perspective. 
we've heard on this podcast, we've heard a lot of um, origin stories, those moments, those aha moments um, where the inspiration, like where just something clicked. Uh, we've heard it happen on uh, Mexican beaches and, and all that kind of mm-hmm. like, glamorous stories. But was there a story like that for Mad Paws? Was there an aha moment where one of you said to the other, what about this? Yeah, so we, we actually had a, a big aha moment, and for myself as well, um, when we did our first um, uh, kind of consumer um, research. So we did, we did, we, we essentially just, because we knew we wanted to do something in the pet space, um, and, um, and we knew some of the issues that, that come with that, right, in terms of, um, you know, not want to go to a kennel and so forth. But when we, we invited a couple of um, dog lovers, and we had like four or five in the room, and, um, you know, the, the amount of love that they had for those pets and the amount of passion that they had for the idea of not having to go to a kennel or, you know, them telling us that they, they're not going on holidays because they feel like they don't have somebody to look after those pets. That was really kind of when it when it's like, oh, okay, shit, there's, there's actually a big, big opportunity here to do something. And, um, you know, went to the, I mean, one of them had, and this was early days, right? One of them had... Um, their own Facebook page for for their pet, right? So this is this is really when we were like, okay, there's um, there's a big opportunity here to 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 really solve a, a, a key um, a customer issue rather than just trying to build something on top that nobody needs. Was that key to validating the idea for the business, like getting out into the pet owning community and talking to people? Like, did you go out to parks and chat to the the people walking their dogs or absolutely i think it, it it's, it's always like that right i think the, the the second you kind of go out and talk to more people you've got a good chance to to find out whether you're on the right track or not the biggest mistake i think you can do is kind of being a in a little apartment and uh, trying to perfect your idea without talking to anyone we've learned that pretty early and we've always done that for pretty much all our businesses um doesn't mean that we get it right obviously all the time but it helped us to really kind of verify that there's something there. And we also thought, you know, there's a big opportunity in the in the pet space in Australia where everyone was kind of back then already focused on retail. So, you know, Pet Circle had already started and we obviously had um, Pet Barn and a couple of big retailers kind of dominating that kind of retail space, but nobody was looking at more from an experience space and a services space. So, so it just seemed like there's really a huge opportunity there to build a bigger brand um, that comes from the um, services side and, and kind of dominates that kind of um, so pet services side and then potentially um, add additional revenue streams to it later, which, you know, over the last kind of couple of years actually happened. So I'd like, I'd like to know, like, when we talk about, you know, it is pet, pet sitting as a service, how do you vet the people that are pet sitters that are going to be, you know, playing such a role in uh, in caring for, you know, dogs and cats. And, you know, like you said, there's such an emotional connection there. It's almost like you're you, there's a bit of matchmaking going on there, right? Well, yeah. I mean, just that, that whole services business is really about matchmaking, right? And, and, and we've learned a lot, I guess, throughout the years on how we have to make that happen. Um, you know, being a kind of hyper-local services marketplace, um, the whole kind of marketplace and how you grow a marketplace is even more true for us than for like a product, online product marketplace, for example. Um, we really had to focus on 
building both sides of the marketplace up at the same time, right? So it means you need enough sitters in a particular area uh, and you need enough um, owners in a particular area that have demand for the service, right? Because otherwise you get sitters on the, on the, on the platform um, and if you don't have owners, you know, they get disengaged and, and, um, and they leave the platform and, and don't want to work with you. On the other side, obviously, if you're an owner and you don't find a sitter, it's a really bad experience and you leave the platform as well. So you kind of have to build it geographically um, uh, with liquidity in the marketplace and building that up. So that, that was the first thing we learned, which meant at the beginning, we kind of put, you know, sitter, any sitter that wanted to come onto the platform on, um, onto Madpos, but then very quickly kind of learned that we'd have to be a lot more stringent in kind of uh, understanding kind of who they are, um, how can we vet them, um, and then how do we match the right sitter with the right owner, right? And so that's been a journey that we're still working on. Um, now it's, you know, we're getting a lot better. We've got a data scientist now that looks at this. We've got um, a um, data engineer that works on our search algorithm. Um, but it really kind of started from us <coughs> manually trying to figure this out. And like any good marketplace, we were sitting there at the beginning um, kind of manually matching people um, uh, and, you know, if we couldn't find a sitter, we'd jump on the phone and call people uh, to find a sitter, right? That's that's kind of how it all starts. But um, to go back to your vetting question, it's now very much a, a online vetting process um, that you go through with a training program. Um, and then we use very quickly, we use data to identify kind of what type of um, sitter you are. Um, are you doing a good job? And if you're not doing a good job, we'll also kick you off the platform very quickly. So um, we've we've been you know a lot more ruthless with this. I think you mentioned we have fifteen thousand. We've actually got over thirty thousand. Um, I think nearly thirty five thousand sitters on the platform now. Wow! Um, and we've become a lot more ruthless um, in kind of who we keep up, um, who's doing a good job and providing great services, versus you know if you're not, you're also be happy to take you off the platform as well. Wow! So. Madpaws, look, it, it's, it began with pet sitting, and pet sitting is like that is the core, the pet sitting service, the boarding, and all that sort of thing. But it's evolved to encompass far more than that. The, was the plan always to scale into other areas of pet needs? I, I see you have insurance, you've got dinner bowl service. Yeah, so um, we've actually looked at um, kind of one of our first pitch decks um, back in the day, and and even then we were talking about this, right? So the idea was always to. Um, and this was our focus for the first couple of years. Uh, and it obviously took us a little bit longer than we, we thought it would. But we wanted to make sure we're number one marketplace in Australia, right? Again, kind of focusing on being the number one. Um, normally comes with a premium. So you'd rather be the number one than, um, than you know, being two or three, particularly in a marketplace scenario. So that was, the, that was the first focus point for us. And only kind of once we achieved that, then I think it was the right time for us to look at how do we now use you know the incredible number of customers and the customer base that we've built up how can we use that now to put other um, premium offerings in front of our customers um, and kind of expand these service and product offerings that we have for our customers obviously uh, adding all those additional services comes at a cost so you did get outside investors and Qantas was one of those early investors in mad pause so how did that come about and why was Qantas such a great alignment for the business yeah Qantas was really um, an awesome partnership early on in the business and um, and again I think the timing timing was um, on our on our side here again 
Qantas was uh, at, at that stage had a venture arm for a while where they kind of looked at adjacent businesses and kind of how they can invest into and obviously accelerate um, some of their investments with the huge kind of, you know, customer base that they have. And for us, the fit was perfect for the marketplace, right? Because uh, when do you need a pet sitter? I mean, you know, normally when you go on holidays, um, who do you use when you go on holidays? Qantas when you fly somewhere. So that kind of fit was was perfect for us. Not And then not just from a customer acquisition point of view, but also from a trust perspective, right? Qantas is probably one of the most trusted brands in Australia, even though they've gone through a bit of a tough patch, I guess, in the last couple of weeks. But that association for us as a marketplace was like super valuable because, you know, particular market um, a services marketplace is very much built around trust. You know, an owner only is going to trust us with their little baby who's really kind of part of the family now. They trust us that we're going to do a good job about it. And so having a brand like Qantas on the platform that helped us really to kind of um, gain that trust with our customers and so for us, it was kind of a, it was good from like two sides, right? One is pure customer acquisition. So really talking to people and we're still integrated into the Qantas flow when you book a flight, you know, it asks you, do you need a pet sitter? So that's, that's the one side we're kind of acquiring um, customers. But the other one was really about building that trust, which helped us hugely in, in, in building the marketplace to the size where it is now. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening are pet owners and um, maybe listening with uh, with a awesome. do- dog running around right now or a cat sitting on the couch with them. So, I mean, I think it's it's incredible to have a service like that. Uh, you know, anything where, I mean, especially over the past couple of years, I would say that COVID has probably been a, a major opportunity. Well, I mean, I, I suppose at that time people were not traveling, so that was a bit, that would have been quite difficult. But now coming out of COVID, a lot of people are traveling and everyone is, I know, I know for a fact that <laughs> from people I know uh, are looking to go away over the Christmas period and that, um, you know, kennels are, are full. Pet sitters are such an important uh, service for people now. Um, what, what's that journey been like through from COVID to now? It was a crazy one to say the least, because like you rightfully said, um, it went from, you know, a huge shock for us at the beginning of COVID. I still remember kind of the, you know, the board meetings we had back then, um, where at the beginning we were like, oh yeah, this is going to be bad. And we're like, oh, probably not that bad. And, you know, two weeks later, we lost pretty much 85% of our revenue because everyone was locked up at home and nobody could travel. So, you know, it's a huge impact for us as a business. And um, and kind of going through that, um, we made a couple of decisions, and I hope we made the right ones. But you know, it, it was it was the decision between shutting down or putting the business into hibernation. You know, letting letting go of all the great you know the great staff that we've built up over over the last couple of years, and then ride out COVID until travel will come back, and then come back out of hibernation. And we decided against that, and we decided to do. The opposite, which was like, no, nah, we want to keep the, the staff because that's, you know, 90% of the business and why it works. And we want to use the staff to actually um, build now the new revenue streams that we've always talked about. And so that was the time when we started Dinner Bowl and we internally kind of built build up Dinner Bowl within, you know, I think from from first idea to shipping the first box was, was somewhere just over two months. 
and that really kind of saved us in a way, right? Because it it meant that we could keep the keep the staff, and you know, the staff was uh, amazing at that time as well. That we, you know, all of them took uh, um, pay cuts to kind of get through that time, and then we ramped it back up once the business kind of slowly came back. So they were extremely supportive and really wanted to stay with the business as well. And we used kind of all that energy to kind of build that new part of the business. Because of that, we had the opportunity then to take the upside out of COVID, which was the realization after two, three months that everyone around us was buying pets. Um, you know, there's, there's 25% more cats out there now and over 20% more dogs out there um, in the 18 months of COVID um, from before and after. So that's obviously a huge opportunity. And travel will come back, you know, we figured out at some stage. So. So because we kind of um, made the bet on staying alive and, and doubling down on the business, adding additional revenue streams, put us into a position to then be able to to raise a bigger round um, to do the pre-IPO round and actually IPO the business then, um, you know, at the end, at beginning of last year. So, you know, I think that was, that was a very um, stressful time. Um, and, uh, and it went from, oh, shit, uh, you know, we're effed. To, um, oh wow, this is actually a huge opportunity for the business, and um, and now the business is over ten times bigger than than when we, when we went into into COVID. So so ultimately, you know, so so far they 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 good story. Now just to wrap up, Justus, um, you're a serial entrepreneur, man with a lot of ideas. From everything we're hearing so far, what's next? Yeah, good question. I mean. Um, so I really enjoy running Madpos at the moment. You know, that's um, that's kind of what I signed up to. And um, I think there's still a lot of stuff we want to get done. Um, we want to build a, a household brand in Australia in the pet space. Um, and, you know, that still needs a lot of work. So um, we've got an amazing team now, um, not just here. We've got, you know, we've got a team all around the world pretty much. Um, we've got offices in in Sydney, Melbourne, and, and Tweed Heads, um, and I think the focus for the next couple of years is going to be making Madpaws the household brand that we we believe it can be. Well, I think with uh, there'll be plenty of uh, happy cavoodles out there uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, at that uh, prospect, um, and uh, plenty of happy uh, cavoodle owners in Bondi and other parts of Australia too, not to, exactly. not to be specific about it. Uh, that's all we have time for today. Uh, Yusuf, thank you so much for joining us on First Act. Thanks so much for having me. For any more uh, info on Mad Paws, uh, head to madpaws.com.au. And thank you for joining us for another episode of First Act.